Okay, Psalm 119, verses, uh, verse 121. Let's read through verse 136, okay? The Bible says, I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Mine eyes fail for thy salvation and for the word of thy righteousness. Deal with thy servant according unto thy mercy, and teach me thy statutes. I am thy servant. Give me understanding that I may know thy testimonies. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void thy law. Therefore I love thy commandments above gold, yea, above fine gold. Therefore I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Thy testimonies are wonderful, therefore doth my soul keep them. The entrance of thy words giveth light, it giveth understanding unto the simple. I opened my mouth and panted, for I longed for thy commandments. Look thou upon me, and be merciful unto me, as thou usest to do unto those that love thy name. Order my steps in thy word, and let not any iniquity have a dominion over me. Deliver me from the oppression of man, so will I keep thy precepts. Make thy face to shine upon thy servant, and teach me thy statutes. Rivers of waters run down mine eyes, because they keep not thy law. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to meet together as your people. Thank you for your goodness and grace to us. Thank you for sustaining us and providing for us. Lord, we pray for continued provision, not just for the things that we need physically, but also for and especially for the things we need spiritually, Lord, because you know the hearts of each and every person here, and uh, you know what our needs are. Lord, we pray that you would meet our needs, give us those things that we uh, perhaps don't even know that we need. And Lord, as we look in your word, we pray for your blessing upon it, that your spirit would take what's spoken, that is, what your word says, and would apply it to each and every one of us according as we have need, even to, even to myself as I try to teach. Lord, please give, give help to your people. Strengthen them. Give them knowledge, but also wisdom to know how to uh, obey your word. And Lord, we just commit this time to you. And Lord, we, we desire that your word would be magnified among us and uh, that we would keep it just like the psalmist uh, says in what we just read. And Lord, we pray for your blessing upon it in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 120, uh, 119, verse 121. I have done judgment and justice. Leave me not to mine oppressors. Now, sometimes, uh, just very quickly, the, you will find in Psalm 119, there are places where the psalmist seems to almost, if you, if you just kind of hastily read over it, it sounds as if the psalmist is almost bragging about what he has done. And of course, we know that people, the Bible says, let another man praise thee and not thine own mouth, a stranger and not thine own lips. I might have gotten that confused, but it, you got the tenor of it. And, but, but sometimes when you read in the Psalms, it sounds like he's doing that. He says, I have done judgment and justice. And here's the key, here's the key with that. We know that, we know that the world, those that do not know the Lord, those that do not know God, they say that despite the fact that they have not obeyed the Lord. They, they, they toot their own horn 
and they brag about what they have done and how good they are and how whatever, whatever the case might be, they brag about that. But the difference between a child of God talking not to others but to God is, number one, God knows what we have done. So there, we don't need to put on airs to God about what, what, who we are and what we've done. God knows. It's foolish to talk to God and, t- and, and explain to Him all that we've done if that's not fact. That's number one, God knows. Number two is this, is that only, only, a, only a child of God, a believer, who has a right spirit with God, that is a humble spirit, can go to God and say the truth about what, you know, whether I have, whether we have actually lived right before, before God in the sight of God and we have tried to do His will or not. And I'm sure for you guys, there's, there's, been a, there's been times maybe when you're going through a difficult time, perhaps like the psalmist in verse 121, under the oppression, he says, Lord, why is it, I, have, I have followed you. I have done your will. I have walked with you. And to say that, we say that if we say that, and I'm sure you probably have said that at some point, we say that with humility, knowing that we know, even though we might not state it with our mouth, the Lord sees our heart and the motivation behind what, the reason we say it. And so we, it, He sees that when we say it, we say that even with dependence upon God, knowing that we can do nothing without Him. And the only reason we have obeyed Him and kept judgment and justice, like the psalmist says, is because God has held us up and sustained us. If God just, look, if God just took His hands off of us and He just, just turned the tap of his influence in our life off, what would happen? That's what we've talked about so many times. Seems like we've circled the wagon so many times about this, the issue of the depravity of man, what our own nature truly is in, just in the flesh without the Lord. If God turned it off, there's not a person in here that would continue to walk with God. So we should ask ourselves, do we disagree with that, with that statement? Because it's true. The only reason that we walk with God is because of God's work in us. That is, <laughs> that is it. So upon that basis, we can say to the Lord, Lord, I have done judgment and justice. I have walked with you. I have read your word. I have prayed. I have kept my, my heart and my mind clean before you, you know, I have been faithful to my wife, to my husband. I have been faithful to your church, to your work. I have been faithful to tell people about Jesus. We say that because a person who is walking with God truly is not there going to say it unless, unless with a clear conscience they know it's true. But again, we know that that's not of us. It's not of us at all. We have nothing to boast of. Verse 122 says this. I love this verse. This is just... This is one of these little nuggets in the Old Testament that you come across that I myself, as I read it, I just passed over it. You know, sometimes when I'm preparing for the Sunday school, I'll read the uh, section and it's just like, <laughs> I'm just being transparent with you. I'll read through the eight verses that, are, that we're set to study in the, the week to come and I'll just be like, oh, you got to be kidding me. Because like, there's, it's, it's, like, it's like I'm... <clears throat> It's like there's nothing there. You know, you read the words and it's like nothing jumps out at you. And that's what happened when I read verse 122. 
And I got to thinking on it. I read a few authors and they started to implant some ideas. That word surety. Listen to this. Let me read it. Be surety for thy servant for good. Let not the proud oppress me. Now we know, you, you, I hope you know that in the Proverbs, being, uh, being a surety for someone else is a bad thing. It's negative, right? That's being a guarantee. Or uh, we might say a co-signer in a business arrangement. So being a surety, he, the Bible says, he that hateth suretyship is sure. It's funny because you have that play on words. He that hateth suretyship is sure. In other words, when we obligate ourselves with people and we take their liability upon ourselves, it often, very often, comes to bite us. It is very rare that it doesn't. So most of the times in Proverbs, a suretyship or being a surety for someone else, a guarantee, is a bad thing. So let's look at the definition. A surety. There's two, two definitions I want you to, to hear. Surety means a pledge, a bond, or a security given as a guarantee of good conduct the fulfillment of cert, or the fulfillment of certain duties. So if you, if you, I don't recommend doing this as a parent. I do not recommend doing this. But if you went and you, um, you signed on the dotted line for one of your children to get a car loan, okay? Now, you expect your child to pay that, that debt. Again, I do not recommend this. I'm just using it as an, as an example. My recommendation, for what it's worth, is to make your child work and save money and pay for their own car. And if you want to help them and... This is what our family did. Again, it's up to you. But if, if you, what we did is because we, our kids were in a death spiral. In other words, they needed a car to get to work and they needed work to get a car. So they were able to save some money. They fronted some money and then we fronted the rest of the money. So there was no like debt arrangement with a bank or anything. And then they paid us back so that they could get the job, you know, that's what we did, and it's worked out twice so far. Actually, three times. Anna's paid us back twice because she wrecked her car and got a better one. <laughs> so, so, but, but, but see, that's, that's a little bit different of an arrangement. That's not my guaranteeing, our guaranteeing to someone else. That's just an arrangement between us two. Now, if you did sign on the dotted line for one of your children, though, you become the surety. Your signature is the surety. In other words, when that, what, what you're doing is you're guaranteeing to the bank that no matter what, this is going to be paid. In other words, you're, you're guaranteeing good conduct. Now, you might not be guaranteeing the child's good conduct, but, but to the, from the bank's perspective, they're getting their money. And if your child fails to pay, pay the payment, they're coming after you. All right? The second definition is this. Surety is a person who undertakes a specific responsibility on behalf of another person who remains primarily liable for that responsibility. A person who is liable for the default. Now follow that. That's what I just got done saying, right? A person who is liable for the default or misconduct of another or for ensuring the performance of some act on another's part. 
Now, here's the bottom line. A surety is a substitution. That's the core. A surety is a substitution. The Bible says in verse number 122, the psalmist talking to God says, God, I'm inserting that, be surety for thy servant for good. So what is the surety in this verse? What is the guarantee? Not a trick question. It is God himself. God himself is the surety. In other words, God himself is going to be the guarantee. Now, why does that matter? Now, I know it's likely that the psalmist wrote this. The Holy Spirit led him to write it. And he wasn't thinking what I'm about to say. But that's okay. Because oftentimes the biblical writers didn't know fully what they were saying when they said it. <laughs> so, what assurity means is a person, another person takes our place and guarantees good for us. That's what the verse is saying. That means despite our own lack of good, so we have no good, the Lord himself is the guarantee of good that will be paid. And he does this in two ways. Number one, he is a surety to us by his good conduct. And number two, he is a surety to us by the fact that he is also made liable for our bad conduct. It's both. It's both the good and the bad. The good, the payment will be made. The bad, I'll take the debt. Those are the two sides of what it means to be surety. Listen to this verse. That means, okay, listen to this verse, and, and it'll make more sense. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this. For he, that's God, hath made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus is our surety. In other words, on the, on the negative side, Jesus became liable. Though he had no sin, he became liable for our debt. If you compare it to a financial transaction, he became liable for our debt. He took the guilt of our sin upon himself and was the guarantee of that, right? Which he satisfied by bleeding shedding his blood upon the cross. He paid that, all right? But number two, so he took our liability, he took our guilt as the surety. But secondly, the second part of that is that's the negative, and then the second part is the positive. Not only did he take the liability, but this verse says that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. In other words, God gave us his righteousness, which is the guarantee of good conduct, the fulfillment of the duty. And so we look at ourselves and we say, well, I'm, I, I'm, I defaulted on the loan. I'm a sinner. I'm not righteous. And so the Lord says, I'll take your guilt. I'll be surety. And secondly, because I have no righteousness, I have no good conduct to give to God. So, God, so the Lord Jesus says, I'm going to give you my good conduct. 
He was our substitute. He was our surety, our guarantee. So not only are we free from the guilt and, you might say, liability of our sin, we've also been given righteousness as a stand-in, His own righteousness as a stand-in, as a guarantee for our good. So honestly, when the bank, that is the Father, looks at us, there is no debt at all. Furthermore, there is a perfect 850 credit score. Has anybody ever had an 850? I've never had an 850. I don't even think an 850 exists. I think it's just, I think it's, I think it's just, uh, what do they call it? Theoretical. I think when they calculate the scores, they start with 850 and they minus one before they even start calculating everything else. But we have a perfect, if you can use that term, an 850 in the sight of God because Jesus is our surety, guarantee. Now we know that we haven't done right. We know that we're sinners. And we know we, do, we have nothing to boast of our good conduct to God. But it's not dependent upon our good conduct. It never was. It was dependent upon our surety. And the result, of course, is our good, the greatest good of all. All right, let's keep, let's keep going. Let's skip down to verse number 126. And the reason I'm skipping down is simply because we've covered a lot of these themes before, and I just I want to keep going so we can make sure we get through our eight verses. It is time for thee to work. It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void Thy law. You know what this is? This is the recognition, the recognition of the limit of man's ability. I think God brings us at certain times in our life to the point where we, we come up against our own limit, the limit of our ability to influence or affect the outcome of a situation. You know, you think of your family. You know, today is Father's Day. I'm going to talk about our families today to some degree. Have you ever been in a place when you were dealing with your children or even with your spouse and there was conflict and you come up to a point that you're dealing with another human being? You're not, you're not dealing with a, a financial issue or even maybe a health issue over which you might have some power. You're dealing with, you're dealing with a matter over which you have almost no power another human being. And sometimes those are some of the most difficult issues to deal with because you cannot affect people's uh, you know, persuasions on certain matters. The Lord brings us, I think, uh, up against these. I mean, that what is ministry? This is, this is all that ministry is. We witness to people, this is what it is. You deal with people who are wayward, this is, this is what it is. You come up to a point where you say, Lord, I can't do anything else. I don't have any other options. I have exhausted my wisdom. I do not know what to do. And that, at that point, I think the Lord brings us to that point so that we will finally say, it is time for thee, Lord, to work. We have hit our limit. The truth is, though, as I said before, the truth is we, we had no ability to begin with. And whatever we, whatever we were trying to do to resolve that situation, that personal conflict, whatever we were doing, it, had, you know, it, it, was, it was only by God's grace that we were doing that to begin with, assuming we were doing the right thing. 
I mean, I've had just, again, transparency because I, look, you know, Brother Stewart's the same way. He would tell you the same thing. Pastor Craig would have told you the same thing. We're just people. We have issues. You know, in my, in my family, I've had issues with my children and with my, my wife, and she has had the same issues with me where a conflict was, just could not easily be resolved. And you know what we had to do? We had to take it to the Lord and say, Lord, it's time for thee to work. <laughs> we can't fix this. Sometimes I was the problem. Sometimes they were the problem. But here's the thing. This is why it is so important. I mean so important that a believer, a child of God, marry a believer. This is why it's so important. The way I view it with my own wife is whenever there's a conflict like that, if it's whether it's I'm at fault or whether she's at fault or both at fault, whatever the case might be, you know, we get it to an impasse. The flesh will not, will not allow us to, to yield and to submit ourselves and to humble ourselves, right? Can get, come on, get a nod. No, don't be all stoic and be all pious and fix your tie and be like, yeah. I know, we're all made of the same stuff. But when we get to an impasse like that, we can go to God. And because our spouse is a child of God, God has a direct line to their heart. The Holy Spirit is in them. And that makes all the difference. Because if it wasn't for that, who in the world knows? Who in the world knows what might happen? And you know, a lot of people, people who maybe... They, they got married and one of the spouses got saved. That's a, that's a hard time. I mean, one, one person's heart is hardened against God. And, uh, and, and that, that can create a great deal of pain and suffering in the, in the life of the, the believer in that case. The limit of our ability, the Lord brings us to that place where we have to call out to Him. We have no other ability. Now, Look at verse 128, if you would. Therefore, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right, and I hate every false way. Okay, let me ask you a question. Raise your hand. Raise your hand if you feel like that you have come to terms and grip, come to grips with what the Bible says on every matter that can, can be questioned. Raise your hand if you know what you know and agree with every single thing that the Bible touches on. You know what it says on every matter without exception. Okay, nobody's raising their hand. So that means right now there are some matters maybe that you haven't quite encountered yet in your life about which you don't, you don't really know what the Bible says necessarily. You've never maybe faced it. You've never had to take, take a look at the Scripture and see what it says and apply it to that matter. And so you don't really know what the Bible says to do in this, this issue or this circumstance because you've never dealt with it. You know what the psalmist is saying? He's saying this. Of God's Word... All of God's Word, no matter what, what thing upon which it touches or addresses, it says, concerning all things. He says, no matter what the Word is, 
no matter what the circumstance is, I don't have to, I don't have, to have encountered that circumstance to know that the Word of God is right on that circumstance. Now, why, is that, why does that matter? But as Stuart, he, he, he's talked about this kind of similarly anyway. He, say, he says this, or well, I'll just explain to it and you'll see what I'm, what I'm talking about. That means on the front end of the problem, before I ever encounter, who knows what we might encounter in the future? Who knows what circumstances or decisions we might have to make, what, what moral dilemmas we might encounter in the future? But here's the thing. I'm deciding right now that it doesn't matter what, it, what the circumstance might be, and it doesn't matter what Scripture might apply. It's right. I'm saying that right now. It's right. So that when I get to the circumstance, I already know the answer. Now, I might not know the specific answer for the specific uh, circumstance, but I've decided a long time ago, this is what the psalmist is saying. He can't possibly have known every single thing that he might encounter or every single moral question or spiritual question, but he said, the Word of God is right. When I get to that point, I'll know it's right then too. And I, here's, here's why that's important. That, that's similar to what uh, Pastor Stewart has said before, which is, I've decided about the will of God that I'm going. That, what, help us out. The question of the will of God. You, you say it more eloquently than I do. You know what I'm talking about, right? And that is exactly what the psalmist is doing. And that's exactly what the psalmist is saying. He's saying, everything, Lord, that you say about every matter that could possibly be is right. I'm saying that now, even though I don't know what that question might be later. You know what? That's faith. Now, here's, now, now follow me. I, I don't want to lose anybody. I might lose myself, to be honest, <laughs> in what I want to say. The psalmist is not reserving the right to test and determine every single thing the Lord spoke as right or wrong as he encounters it in each circumstance. You know, you look at society. You know, we'll talk about it some this morning. You look at society. You know, in our Constitution, in our church Constitution, we put stuff in there about gay marriage, right? Because, because that's obviously outside of God's will and it's something that, that the Lord does not recognize. We put in, that's a, what, that was in 2011. That's 12 years ago. Since then, I mean, 12 years ago, the thought of what you're reading in the news, what, that hadn't even really occurred to anybody. And behold, it is upon us. But you know what? What God says is true. I mean, we just settled that beforehand. So we, we had no idea we were going to be faced with all this other just insanity. Insanity. But yet, here we are. But you know what? What God says is true. And we're going <clears> to <throat> find the relevant scripture to understand God's, God's mind on it, and we're going to apply it to this too, knowing that God's right. So as new things pop up, we don't, we don't say, well, what does the Bible say? Well, let's decide for this new thing whether God is right on this. Let's determine for this new thing whether God is right on that. But that is exactly what is happening. 
in Christian churches. Because people, listen, people are eating their own previous positions. Politicians are, preachers are, denominations are. What they used to stand for, they are actually devouring and destroying the foundations that they once had. They're changing. Because they came up with a new question, and the question now is, can a person change their gender? Well, but our thing is, I already decided that God was right on this, even though I didn't know it was going to come up. But the problem is, that's not what they're doing. They are, they are as each new thing comes up, they are testing that whether God, they're going to accept what God says on the matter, every new thing that comes up. You know what they're doing? They're deciding, well, you know, I don't really agree with that. And usually it's, it's pressure. That's all it is. It's societal pressure. They're afraid, and so they cave. Now, here's, what, here's the problem with that. To do that is to, is to stand in judgment of God's Word on every little thing. Determining whether or not one thinks this or one thinks that word from God is right or is wrong. And you know what this is? This is what is called secular or rationalistic humanism, which is the belief that human beings alone determine whether something is right or wrong through, ration, through, through rationale, through rationalism. This is what's wrong with rationalism. We don't determine through simple logic and human wisdom, whether something is right or wrong. That is not the standard. That is not the standard. That is secular or rationalistic humanism, where human beings are the center. Rationalism means, listen to this, that, 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 re that reason is the primary source of knowledge. Now, is that true? Is reason the primary source of knowledge? See, rationalism excludes on purpose anything supernatural. That means the Bible. They don't allow that, that into the thinking. Well, that's a problem. Because rationalism can bring you to where we are in the transgender movement. It makes sense if you accept that premise. It is through rational inquiry and critical thinking that one can attain true understanding. You see, this is what the psalmist is saying is, he's, again, before he ever gets to each question that might come up, he's saying, God's Word's right. No matter what it is, no matter what it touches, God's Word is right. Why? Because this is God's supernatural and divine revelation. This is His words. They will not change. And God, who knows all, he knows the future. He knows the past. He knows the human heart. What he has said is settled, right? And so I can say now, before, who in the world knows what we might see in 10 years? There is no, at this point, I mean, all bets are off. <laughs> God's word is right. In 2023, it's right for 2033. See, we, we make, by faith, a blanket statement. You say, some people would be like, well, that's ignorant. How do you know if everything that the Bible says? Look, look, that, that's, that's not even under discussion. 
what God says is true, and we're going to stay, stay by what it says. We make a blanket statement of God's Word, even over those matters in God's Word that we have yet to encounter. You see that? You know, just like Brother Stewart said, that's the same thing. We do it with the will of God, our decisions. We do it with moral questions, with everything. We say, I esteem all thy precepts concerning all things to be right. And I hate every false way. You see, in the world, the secular world, who thinks that they can, they can argue themselves into these positions, you know, the secular world looks at us and they, you know, as they progress, as they call it, they view us as just further and further in the past. Just outdated, barbaric, you know. That's, that, that's what we appear. But the reality is, we're just where we were all along, right? If, a, if, if, a, if, a, if you have an island with a lighthouse on it, like you've seen the picture, you have an island with a big lighthouse on it, and a ship is anchored off the coast of the, off that island some, some ways, and the ship pulls up the anchor, from the ship's perspective, the island is getting more and more distant as it floats away. But the island isn't moving. The island isn't moving. It's the ship that's moving. And that's what, we need, that's what we need to decide. We're going to go with God's Word. And you know what? I say that, but I acknowledge that there is no way under the torrent of ungodliness that is being pumped into our brains at every turn, there is no way that we could stand at that place except God holds us up and gives us wisdom. Let's pray.